0: Welcome to the Respiratory Guru, the home of the genuinely useful respiratory updates. My name is Diana Kavanagh and I am a respiratory consultant working in the West Midlands. So the aim of this podcast is to try to summarise this month's clinically relevant respiratory research to keep you up to date with the latest evidence and guidelines to ensure you're delivering the best care for your patients and ticking that CPD box. I personally work full-time, and I'm a mum and a farmer's wife, and so I find it incredibly hard to carve out any time in my day to read, for example, The Lancet, and then even when I do, it feels like a slightly disappointing endeavour, as it never seems to be particularly relevant to my clinical practice. So I was looking for a podcast that would summarise all of the respiratory updates for me and couldn't find it, so I tackled the situation head-on and created my own. Luckily, for some reason, each month there tends to be a theme for it, the research, coming out i've also worked with some excellent clinicians who have been very generous with their time and happy to be interviewed by me in said area i don't know about you but these days with so many subspecialities in respiratory i feel increasingly and embarrassingly de-skilled in many areas so if you feel the same as me then this is the podcast for you as i ask all the silly questions that you might not feel comfortable asking <music> so for today's episode about complex breathlessness i'm thrilled again to be joined by professor manseur who as you all know did the brilliant podcast about asthma biologics which i highly recommend that you go back and uh, have a listen to so um over to you professor dr manseur would you like to introduce yourself
1: yeah hi diana um thanks for, for this invitation so um I've been a um, consultant physician here at Heartless in Birmingham for a good 20 years now. So it's been a long time. Uh, and uh, during this time, I have been the lead for the severe asthma services, uh, which um, part and parcel of it is to deal with issues of complex breathlessness and related comorbidity that comes along with patients presenting as difficult to treat asthma.
0: Mm, okay. Yes thank you. Um, So the reason why I sort of reached out to you and your colleagues uh, to begin with was because I always try and base this podcast where possible around research updates so that we can try and you know remain as up-to-date as possible when we're you know delivering care for our patients and one of the um, papers that's been released recently was by Stephen Fowler and his team and to be fair it it was a it was just a say just it was a systematic review talking about ILO and I didn't realise until prior to our pre-meet that ILO is the new vocal cord dysfunction. Um, I think so. It's probably more uh, interesting if you can perhaps kick off and tell us about your understanding of ILO or vocal cord dysfunction uh, and why we've arrived at this
1: perhaps this new terminology? Yeah, thanks Diana. So um, ILO as inducible energy obstruction um, has been used maybe for the last five years or so as a a new terminology for vocal cord dysfunction. Mm. Uh, And before that, vocal cord dysfunction itself um, was used for quite several years. Uh, and i'll tell you that there were other terms used as well instead of vocal cord dysfunction over time uh, and you could see that there is an issue of around what this entity exactly means mm-hmm. uh, and hence led to different terminology uses mm-hmm. so uh, the, the word vocal cord dysfunction um, means that the vocal cords goes an unusual way from their normal behavior uh, which uh, they will be adducted nicely during inspiration uh, and um, and during expiration usually as well. So to allow unrestricted flow of air through the larynx. So the issue is, is that um, some patients develop paradoxical vocal cord movement, particularly during inspiration. So they got adduction and closure of the glottis and that's lead to um, impedance of um, during inspiration, in particular, but sometimes can extend it to expiration as well. Mm. But I think uh, people, when they look at the terminology of vocal cord dysfunction, uh, it, it's actually fairly broad and non-specific. And you might even get into, for example, if you got a paralysis of the vocal cords and the vocal cords are not working very well, they are in theory are dysfunctioning, but uh, that's different from the use of vocal cords function, where intrinsically the, the vocal cords themselves should be normal, uh, except that their movement goes abnormal in some way. So it's an intermittent, and hence the word inducible has been used. Mm. Uh, inducible, as in it can be induced by triggers, be it exercise or strong smells or even stressful conditions etc I can't do that um, and laryngeal obstruction so they moved a little bit to just the vocal cords and a bit more encompassing because sometimes not just if you look at the larynx you can get the closure from the true vocal cords themselves but there's something called pseudo vocal cords or indeed the arter- arytenoids as well on top of them they can fall then during inspiration and cause degree of restriction and hence the uh, the then the uh, use of uh, inducible energy or obstruction ILO came from. Mm-hmm. That's a long answer for uh, just a definition. No, but there that, you go?
0: That's very helpful. Thank you. It's a good it's a good introduction to it. Um. So I guess the symptoms of it, the symptoms of ILO, but then also the key thing for me is a I I do a general Airways clinic. The the key for me as well is. You know, when I'm seeing these people, how can you start with, in the history taking to think this is going towards an ILO direction rather than an asthma history? Because all too often the symptoms are sort of bung together and our job, isn't it, as secondary care specialists, is to have that 30 minutes to take to, to pull that history apart. So, sorry, also a long question. Um, but. Yes, I mean, the symptoms of ILO and then what might steer you more towards an ILO diagnosis rather than an asthma one? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Obviously, that's the crucial
1: question, in a sense, uh, for any (laughs) clinician sitting in the clinic. Uh, So what you um, are, is I think history makes at least 90 percent of the uh, differentiation here. So Mm. very good history on being aware of the differences. Uh, So, as you know, classically, asthma is a variable airflow obstruction manifesting in variable symptoms of wheeze, tightness, breathlessness and coughing. Uh, And generally, those relate to more of expiration, like the wheeze and so forth, than inspiration. And it's it's a polyphonic, uh, it's sporadic in different parts, of so it's widespread as well on the chest usually while patients with ILOS uh, tend to have more upper airways issues so the with that you find for example the wheeze uh, is more likely to be inspiratory so it's could be str- strider type of form mm-hmm. wheeze second is um the level of tightness the patient tend to point to the upper chest mm-hmm. just under or at the uh, at, or over the neck itself and they a lot of them put their hands feeling like feeling like strangulated. Um, it, often they make a description of, they feel so tight as they try to breathe in on the neck level, uh, almost like a breathing towards a straw. So that's using that um, description, which actually reflects on what actually happens on the larynx, where you will see the glottis closed to remain very small, Opening we call it posterior chinking on the larynx glottis itself, mm-hmm. and and therefore they feel very restricted. And the harder they breathe in, the mm-hmm. worse it gets, mm-hmm. uh, because if you forcefully try to breathe in against the closed larynx, it glows mm-hmm. even further. And mm-hmm. it's very scary, so it's frightening. Really, the patient feels almost they're going to die from it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's uh, and without good explanation, b- this tend to carry bad news for them the other thing about it is tend to be uh, very quick in onset mm. so a lot of asthma takes a bit longer to actually happen So say 20 minutes half an hour but this is within seconds uh, yeah. patient from normal into having a full blowing type of attack as well voice can go away with it as well so you yeah. can uh, lose voice at the same time uh, so these are the things to look for these are quite particular for the other airways compared to the asthma itself. And obviously you need to remember that um, there's overlap and also there is uh, um, they can they can coexist. Uh, yes. together, But not necessarily one or the other. So and sometimes is is how then we see how much of it, is it asthma and how much of it is it as well.
0: And, Yeah, I mean, I read a statistic that 50% of asthmatics, what's um, 50% of asthmatics have features of perhaps ILO or abnormal laryngeal movements. Is there a shared pathology therefore between asthma and ILO? If so many patients with one have the other, or is that just a coincidence?
1: It's difficult to know exactly the proportion of patients with asthma who actually have ILO. So Mm. in our numbers, so if if we have 100 referred to our difficult to treat severe asthma clinic, Mm. um, we find about 10% of the referrals have got good going ILO, which is, in a sense, the dominant diagnosis. So it's really the main driver of their symptoms. They might have a bit of mild asthma uh, underlying it but uh, ILO is the big thing. Then 30%, they will have ILO on top of problematic asthma. Mm. So that takes you about 40%, which is not far away from the 50% figure, but this is numbers goes for a severe, difficult to treat asthma clinic. And remember, patients referred where they failed many other treatments and what thing to happen with this patient because it's not a very well known entity uh, patient treated as asthma, and usually their treatment escalated all the way up, including uh, regular steroids use, um, and sometimes it goes years before anything being spotted. Um, mm. Tell somebody who knows about it could see that if you look for asthma, you couldn't find it, and then you'll find a quite good going aisle for that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that uh, that is the issue that um, so they they can happen together, and then for us as a clinician, we want to know which is the main diagnosis in that particular patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you don't want to miss asthma uh, because the treatment has got implication of escalation uh, of uh, asthma treatment. So if somebody comes to a for example, mm-hmm. with an acute attack, mm-hmm. and you think this could be an ILU attack, mm-hmm. and so you're not giving them the steroids, the nebulizers, the bronchodilators, and so forth, Mm. Um that's obviously a tricky decision uh, and you have to have the confidence of accuracy of diagnosis to do that.
0: Yeah. OK, thank you. Um, so two questions. So the first one is, I guess, testing for it. So test the, the gold standard test is um, ENT to do uh, an FNE uh, to have a look at the, the vocal cords. But. Um, and I'll say to my secretary, um, because I've done everything else and everything's come back as negative. I so say I only want to see this patient once they've had the FNE done, and then she'll email back and say, but it's 33 weeks until um, that we see them next, and I, I feel really bad for them. And I guess, um, well, that's the issue in, in my trust. I suspect it's the it's the it's the problem everywhere, and it probably means that we. I feel like we need to work more about making an MDT to perhaps speed up some of these processes but what in terms of uh, aside from the FNE which takes circa 33 weeks in our trust other tests for ILO my understanding and my current operation is that I rule out asthma and rule out reflux and rule out everything in this I can spend those 33 weeks ruling out everything else basically is there's, is that right? And then is there, and is there anything else that you would do in terms of tests um to help build up that case?
1: Yeah, no, thanks. Diane. So, um, so, yes, you would like to look into um, asthma uh, as well. So these standard tests uh, in terms of um, spirometry loops, loops, quite useful, actually, uh, because uh you would see some abnormalities in the flow volume loops uh, particularly on the inspiratory limb of it because mm. as the patient tries try to breathe in like mm-hmm. it's is that limitation of inspiration so you get truncation of inspiration on the uh so when you see it, it is fairly su- suggestive mm. of ilo uh but if you don't see it um doesn't rule it out because it's an intermittent condition so you don't necessarily get it on. Do the, the one test, you do. Mm-hmm. But the loops will also give you the pattern of uh, concavity that you see on expiration of airflow obstruction, of lower airflow obstruction, of an asthma or mm-hmm. other um, uh, causes of airflow obstruction. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is uh, worthwhile also getting the type two markers: the exhaled nitric oxide, mm-hmm. the blood eosinophils. Yeah, uh, and you know. Um, uh, we sometimes go to provocation testing as well in terms of how much airway responsiveness ideally if you could do it with loops as well you could actually get sometimes those um, extra thoracic variable airflow obstruction which Mm -hmm. is the ILO. loop it's outside the chest cage and therefore you see more truncation on the inspiration um, uh, and and the uh, peak inspiratory flow tend to be reduced in that. So there are some physiological tests can help in yeah. um, in knowing how much asthma is there, how much is it dominant one way or dominant the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that can help. Um, before that, there are actually uh, you know talking about symptoms and in clinic there are simple tools. Certainly, our um, senior speech therapist who specialized mm-hmm. in this, Nicola Pargeter, has produced like a simple uh, screening uh, uh, so you could use that questionnaire which in the clinic to see how uh, strong the possibility of isla as well now one issue is about the um, ent uh, approach to isla is is that uh, you really need to um, be in touch with somebody who specializes in the area Mm. uh, because uh, it's not well-known even in, in the ENT world and uh, a lot of time the examination would be normal basically. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the larynx outside and it will be sort of an attack, it will yeah. look absolutely normal. So a lot of patients uh, will be excluded, on ha- doesn't have any problems uh, on the basis of that. Um, the, the speech therapist for us is the the one who does the work and mm-hmm. um, they do a uh, provocation with nasendoscopy. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is the gold standard test. Um, so, what you would like to do is provoke a mini attack mm-hmm. uh, and have a look at the larynx at the same time. Yeah. So, you would like to reproduce the symptoms the patient experience yeah. and have a look uh, live on the larynx.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and there were, so if you have somebody uh, who gets uh, classical paradoxical um, movement of the focal cord. At uh, mm-hmm. the time you un the symptoms, that's the diagnosis being made. Uh, uh, and if, if for example, you can't produce the symptoms, they can't see it, you can't exclude it because mm-hmm. you still need to look for other triggers and so forth. So maybe another day where these things will happen. Yeah. Uh, and then you have others where you, you have produced some symptoms, but they are not idle ones and you know there is something else. Yeah. So you, here, you need really somebody who is specialized. And I, I know that our speech service, for example, works uh, and already trying to uh, work with many um, other speech service nationally and regionally mm-hmm. to try to increase the awareness, experience, and the diagnostic. And hopefully, that could be a way of improving access. I don't yeah. think it's actually the ENT is the most. But you need to be mindful of red flags of ENT symptoms, you know, hoarseness, or somebody having particular throat-type symptoms where you worry there may be other pathology of more sensitive nature that uh, you need the ENT to have a look at.
0: Right. Yes, thank you. I think as a consultant, where I sort of got a bit more control over my service, I think this is. I think my takeaway from this is to really go away and and, and know really that service in our hospital because I aren't, I'm not sure that the SALT and the ENT work together and just knowing your local pathway and helping to, to develop one because obviously you've got a robust one at Heartlands and it sounds like Nicola is quite good at um, steering any support about what that pathway should look like locally so and so the other thing as well is I get asked and I'm sure you do is that you know for all these patients I say oh sorry it's oh, because when I've referred to salt, they've said we need an FNE first before we'll see them. So that's why, that's why there's the wait. And so the patient says, well, "What am I meant to do before then?" So we've got a, um, a a speech and language therapist that lives in the village. So I just WhatsApped her and was just like, "Uh, uh-uh, what do I do?" And she gave me some tips about gargling and stuff like that. But I feel obliged in that situation, in that clinic situation, where the patient sat in front of you, and I'm saying yeah this probably smells and looks like vocal cord dysfunction but my current hospital pathway it is to get an epnate and then refer you to salt and to be honest that's going to take a year um is there anything that i can advise my patient to do in the meantime um like gargling exercises um breathing exercises i just feel like i want to say something
1: do something right um where the uh, the gold standard treatment is speech therapist really and mm-hmm. uh, you you will need um, um, a specialized speech therapist to actually uh, uh, do the therapy and they usually provide sessions uh, from mm-hmm. four to six sessions each one of them to ensure that the um, patient is well educated the the thing is um um, so, the, just before, you know, your question is more around what I do in a clinic where I don't have access to, you know, super specialized people who will take yeah. a long time for the patient to actually get to them. So, what can I say to them right there and then? Mm. Um, so, I'll come back to that very quick. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but uh, just before that, we need to um, uh, be uh, thinking of uh, uh, what makes patient believe uh, there's this condition and accepts this diagnosis because there's variability you know some people have been told they got asthma for a long time mm. and here you go you say oh actually it sounds more like an ILo so um, why do this and don't use this it's yeah. a bit uh, hard sell at that time and you would like to have more objective confirmation before you have that confidence uh, in mm-hmm. doing that that's one thing. Uh, and the other thing is is about how much um uh, they can see it and the beauty of nasendoscopy with provocation, and if the patient actually can see what's happened to their larynx on a video or even live, and mm-hmm. they see actually they got this and they could see closure, and this is how I feel this is what my attacks look like yeah. that is really strong powerful point because at that point they uh, they know it and and then the treatment follows and they're more likely to follow and be e- uh, easier to do. While if they are uh, not certain and, and some patients don't like um, their diagnosis of asthma to be taken away as well and, and there is a lot of the things that you need to consider in this uh, type of conversation. Uh, so these speech therapists they use you know s- sometimes simple um, tips like sniff test which uh means that you generate pressure from the nose down to the diaphragm so you're expanding <laughs> the bottom of the lungs with the diaphragm, diaphragm movement uh, and that leads to um more of opening of the mm-hmm. vocal cords or sometimes they do a short panting type of expiration so focus on <laughs> as you breathe out yeah. short ones rather than doing <gasps> <gasps> which is making it harder the vocal cords closes with <gasps> yeah. this because you're expanding the chest I- increasing the intrathoracic, uh, well reducing the intrathoracic pressure and that's the atmospheric pressure comes on top of it and mm-hmm. that worsens the situation while the expiration uh, mm-hmm. it allows them to do that Uh, The speech service use a lot of other techniques that I don't know or can't describe well myself, but it's to do with relaxation of larynx and doing different, sometimes special tricks to actually do that. So maybe worthwhile that in the next one, we'll have uh, somebody like (laughs) Nicola to tell us exactly about her tips on these ones. Uh, But... but, um, you know, if you identify somebody in the clinic, uh, mm. I do demonstrate myself, sniff and short panting and, you know, using the uh, hands over the tummy. And as sort of you, it's more uh, breathing out when you press in your tummy. So on expiration, mm. your tummy goes in and gentle easing. Yeah. Uh, and they practice it if they practice in the clinic and they try to practice when they have the attack and see it works. It, yeah it does help to positively reinforce
0: yeah that, uh, in their mind okay thank you thank you so much um I, i'm gonna move on but have you got anything else that you want to mention about vocal cords dysfunctional I, ilo
1: yeah so uh well, perhaps um, we talked more in context of uh, coming into an asthma clinic or, or indeed a severe asthma clinic but it has got a wider presentation so um, particularly in athletes uh, okay. and uh, there is uh, what we call exercise induced laryngeal obstruction yeah. uh, EILO uh, okay. and uh, you know top athletes their larynx um, at a, a, arytenoid folds comes on top on peak exercise can be quite a handicap for some of them and mm. um, military personnel as well very stressful things but we didn't really touch on you know it's not exactly just one thing by the way uh, because there is what is described as more of a psychogenic conversion uh, mm. part of it where you have somebody with trauma history as a child for example uh, you know significant trauma history that um it sort of uh, presents in, in a conversion way, uh, like uh, dysfunctional larynx. And earlier on, I mentioned different terminology being, um, being used, like a nervous asthma, for example, has been used, or asthma nervosa, or something like this. Mm. Uh, so um, so th- that uh, is another uh, presentation uh, where you get really quite significant obstruction in, in psycho- psychogenic way with no asthma at all, or um, no other really significant disease of the mm. airways. But then you have, patients who has got really a lot of airway high responsiveness and alongside, you could have hypersensitive larynx uh, mm. that can cause this situation. And we think reflux can play part in that as well as a gastrocystic reflux disease. So w- would be worthwhile looking at, is there how much reflux uh, in a patients and controlling that? And the other thing is, uh, you know, rhino science disease with postnasal drip, as well as sensitization on the pharynx going down into the larynx, uh, that might be playing a factor as well in this situation. So, thinking about nose sciences and pharynx, and thinking about reflux, and thinking about asthma and its type, they all can trigger something or the other around it. And then you have those with. Uh, you know, psychogenic things as well. And as ever in this life, um, you not necessarily have one only or the other only. It's mm. it, it, sometimes you get overlap and mixture of things at the same mm-hmm. time.
0: Yeah. Okay. I think that, well, to be fair, you've touched on the subjects so that I wanted to come on to you next. So I guess in order, um, reflux is what I was going to sort of come on to you next. Because again, we see it a lot as a differential for a chronic dry cough um i mean the two studies that have come out well one study that came out this this year was ba- the study to be fair that this the, the study uh title just summarizes the outcome which is symptoms classically attributed to reflux uh, correlate poorly with the findings on the uh, multi-channel impedance testing so they're saying that just what it says on the tin that patients who complain a lot of symptomatic reflux that isn't always picked up on the um, you know on the, on the ph study um so i think what i wanted to talk about really was again going back to that clinic scenario where you've got someone with this chronic dry cough so my colleague who i won't name but does refer to you uh, from our trust says that i should get a barium swallow first and being a junior consultant i followed like the sheep that I should do as a junior consultant. So I get all my patients a barium swallow now. And then I think if it comes back as showing reflux, I then get to be honest, I think I flip a coin and sometimes I do a PhD and sometimes I refer straight for an OGD. Um because and I don't really know I'm waffling here. I don't I don't have I don't know if anyone has a good order in which way to work things up. Um, and I just wondered what you would recommend or what or at least what is your practice, because I do have those three tests open to me, but I don't really know in which order I should be ordering them over to you.
1: Yeah, thanks. Diana. It's a, a you know, very good practical question because um, this is, you know, um, all of us comes across in the clinic a lot mm. of times. So. Um, and i suppose depends on the entity as well you're dealing with so for example if we are talking about somebody with intractable persistent cough that um, has been going on forever and uh, you would like to think is it reflux driving it or something else and and how would i initiate the investigation for this one uh, so for this patient i often will get a, a lung function and get loops as well and phenol, i like having actually phenol for this patient and look at if there's any synophilia as well if i find they have evidence of asthma you might see it uh, if their phenol is high they're meant to be that cough more like to be a steroid responsive cough mm. and therefore a trial of inhaled cortex steroids of a, a kind uh, for a couple of months would be my recommendation prior to going down the reflux story however mm. um a, a lot of times you know you do these things on negative and at the same time the patient do have symptoms of reflux mm-hmm. and a cough then i would go for a ppi and obviously i would use um something like 20 milligrams uh, twice a day for mibrazole or Lanzibrezole. But the the idea of twice daily regime has been recommended in a sense, it's more effective for provision of 24 hour Mm -hmm. um, acid suppression for long enough, couple of months uh, at Mm -hmm. least, or three months, because a lot of times that single use, not long enough, then you don't really know. if they. So, in the lack of any red flags of GI problems Mm -hmm. where you will need barium swallow, you need an endoscopy, uh, and it's more of like a cough, possibly a reflux driven, uh, a treatment trial with me is justified beforehand. Uh, And if the treatment trial has um, uh, not produced the benefit, and I still think reflux could be an issue, and we've seen it over the years where reflux can be a big problem that is not. Uh, uh, covered enough by PPI for one reason or the other, because you got the acid reflux, you got the non-acid reflux, you got gaseous reflux. So there are other components of reflux that can drive the issue. Uh, and in, in that situation, uh, my next step would be 24-hour pH manometry studies, well, to differentiate acid versus non-acid type mm-hmm. of reflux. Uh, and um, from that, uh, you, if results reassuringly, manometry is good, things, you know goes away um, from the reflux has been a a strong factor. We published in the past uh, on our series of anti-reflux procedures, fund duplications, in patients uh, had failed PPIs treatment, uh, but they still have significant reflux that's objectively confirmed with these studies, and we showed benefit over and above just PPIs in, in those patients. Uh, so so if you have somebody from the asthma clinics, if you asthma clinic, for example, with a reflux symptoms, mm. we've seen it, that patient will have um, uh, not necessarily the same results on their monitor. So uh, mm-hmm. they might have a lot of symptoms. They do a monitor you find fairly normal study. And mm-hmm. it could be normal because technical issues. Uh, mm-hmm. So it could be mindful of that but sometimes it just says that the symptoms are driven by something else rather than the reflux really and hence maybe going in the wrong direction for, for that yeah. Does that answer or do you feel that you still No, know that's very helpful
0: I and i think i've been over i think my um i mean there is one chap that reports all the barium swallows in my trust and the fact that basically a third of my new patients get a barium swallow um i think he'll be quite great well <laughs> Because I think his requests are going to go down, but no, that's really helpful. Thank you. Uh, I suppose
1: uh, again, like uh, anything else, you would like uh, to send these to. I mean, um, to somebody who does a lot of them as well. Yeah. Uh, So I mean, I have an excellent physiologist here who Mm produces great reports for us over the years. Uh, So that's it's uh, just keep in mind as well in terms of but but i think you know they, these type of they are trained physiologists who uh, yeah. would be qualified to to do these type of report
0: um, no I, I, yeah we've got a, a brilliant physiologist at uh, our trust so and i guess that when i was sort of doing my my notes prior to this um so i found um a, a letter once that had come from a cough clinic in hull and I always remember it. And I remember copying and pasting it, and 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 using that advice all the time. And it was basically if you've got chronic cough secondary to, um, you know, reflux, but you don't want to go down the fundoplication route. He then lists off about six medications, and I used to do it, but they're really strong. They've got lots of side effects, and the GPs don't like doing it. Um, it was like. Metoclopramide, then domperidone, then azithromycin, then baclofen, and these poor patients that I well, I'd read this letter, so it must be right because it's come from a quaternary type centre. Um, is that a that I've I've stopped doing that practice now? Actually, I must say I've um because it's not worked. Other pharmacological treatments for these patients, I guess, would you do you go any further or? It sounds like you've got a fairly robust plan that makes sense without you know yeah,
1: trial but, uh, and error yeah no yeah thanks dear i mean the, the thing is about the reflex has been the um uh, shall we say a bit of schism amongst uh, specialists, um specialists mm. uh, about you know there are some people who are really strongly pro-reflex as a driver of uh, cough and other diseases well while others felt it's just a bystanders or egg and chicken type things a lot of medicine generates reflux and then so forth mm-hmm. i i mean i believe probably the truth is somewhere in between because there may be there will be cases where reflux is a factor in treating it and we've seen it made a huge difference uh, to patient. and at the same time obviously it's not the panacea for everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i think um, it, you know taking things quite a far in terms of a lot of like baclofen and um other antispasmodic and so forth yeah. i personally don't don't do it um pro motility drugs could be used if there is you know evidence of uh or or motility of the esophagus for example that that's fine i would try mm. that emptying and so forth Alongside other lifestyle changes and things, the advice which never really make a huge difference in my experience to patients, mm. maybe it's just they can't really follow them or keep them up to the. But you need to keep in mind that, um, in addition to, um, so really, you could think of three big factors for cough. One is reflux, one is an asthma type phenotype, could be synophilic bronchitis or could be cough variant asthma. Uh, uh, and then you have the um, it could be the infective phenotype I call it, call it which is the productive cough thing where macrolides can work. If you've got access to sputum analysis on looking at how much neutrophils and how much eosinophils, mm. with lots of neutrophils, they're probably more likely to respond to a macrolide like azithromycin in, in those situations. Uh, and then excluding these ones, you got left over with the hypersensitivity cough. These are patients where the cough receptors has been oversensitized over time, and it's it's they just get triggered with anything comes along you know non specific triggers a sniff of acid or um, any strong smells around or whatever can you know exercise, change temperature whatever set them off coughing, yeah. Uh, and these type of patients, um, you want to desensitize their cough. and know there's uh, quite a few trials for receptors, blockers, and so forth for cough. But um, uh, things like pregabalin, uh, uh, gabapentins, and even morphine has been used in this situation. And I have good successes with pregabalin support. so forth. Uh, there are still times where uh, if I didn't get a good response, I will send them to uh, you know, like Manchester Cough Clinic, which they do a lot of research as well. Um, mm. uh, and there are some, uh, you know, uh, I know colleagues here they do some cough trials as well for these patients. So sometimes putting them uh, in uh, studies will be useful as well for those with uh, intractable hypersensitive cough uh, where the other causes has been dealt with.
0: So, um, I mean, sorry, I think I, this is again, I'm just. Um... Popped into my head, as it were, but um, oh, Jefra Pixant, they all end in Pixant. That I feel, I feel like they're kind of phase three, phase four trials about, and I think they are reducing irritation, inflammation, hyper hyperresponsiveness in in the main airways. Um, I don't think it's. I remember reading about these studies probably about a year ago. I haven't seen them coming into, you know, NHS prescribing yet. Have you? Do you know what I'm talking? I know, yeah, you, yeah, know no, myself, yeah, you know what I'm talking
1: about. No, I don't think they are out yet. As far as I know, they are not really uh, licensed for clinical use, mm. So it's still on trial phase uh, as far as I know. Um, wh- you know, um, one of them has got uh, paste um, loss side effects, but the newer version, I think that has overcome that. So mm. we'll, okay. uh, we'll so- see. They, they look promising.
0: Okay watch this space. And then the final thing I think you said was dysfunctional breathing uh, to rule out with these, you know, we said we were in our pre-chat, we were talking about, you know, the causes of complex breathlessness um, and dysfunctional breathing being one of those. Um, I mean, we've just recently appointed a specific respiratory physiotherapist and I've just read today that she saw one of my patients diagnosed with dysfunctional breathing done some good techniques and the patient feels better for it. So it's wonderful to be able to have that that service now, which we didn't have before. Um, any parting thoughts about dysfunctional breathing before we, I think, draw to a close?
1: Yeah, so uh, um, uh, and, and again, like uh, Ilo and vocal cords function, in addition to dysfunctional breathing, now we use the term breathing pattern disorder. Uh, as in more encompassing. So, you get people with chronic uh, hyperventilation, uh, undysfunctional breathing, and so forth. So, any, shall we say, um, derangement from a normal breathing pattern uh, comes under disordered breathing pattern. Um, so, how common is it in a difficult to treat asthma? At least 60% of patients will have a problem of a of nature. Uh, so you could imagine that, you know, once people run into a breathing trouble, they develop all sorts of breathing patterns after that. Mm. Some of it is compensatory. Um, so, for example, if somebody had a life-threatening asthma attack, felt really going to die from it. And next time they have symptoms suggestive of something similar, mm. they will panic and they will breathe fast. And, they, uh, and the faster they breathe, the worse they feel and they will wash their co2 and they got all these symptoms along that you know tingling around the mouth and you know tremors and they feel something strange happens to them and make them even more worried and their asthma get worse and they get themselves into that cycle um, so that's hyperventilation part of it uh, then the uh, you have somebody sitting in front of you in the clinic and they do all sort of breathing type forks you know so I sometimes I observe a patient where I start to feel breathless just looking at the way they (laughs) breathe themselves because they do it's all type of movement um and they exhausting that movement and you could see the 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 synchronization of chest and abdomens and the shoulders and you you could on uh, the marked breathing and all of that it's mm-hmm. quite obvious to see uh, so um physiotherapists will be able to actually um uh, usually successfully uh, manage that mm-hmm. um, uh, it, you know it's the earlier uh, that you pick that up the better mm-hmm. uh, so if somebody running you know really bad breathing pattern type of uh, work for many years it's really hard to actually bring the back to baseline mm. that you would like to do but if it is happens fairly early on after um acute attack first one or second one and happens and you you've been educated you could avoid a lot of problem in the future yeah um, yeah but for us the physio obviously um, in addition to this they things like pulmonary have even for severe asthma mm. the, Really uh, uh, useful because primary health programs is uh, where you deal with their breathing um, control, clearance, etc., and perhaps some psychologies as well comes along with it, and then improving their fitness and overall. So that's uh, another useful extension to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have um you know, our physios also look into the rhino part of the issue and blocked nose mm. and mouth breathing is associated with breathing pattern disorder because the moment you start to breathe to your mouth all the time, your breathing goes in the wrong way. And therefore making the nasal passages functioning is, is a priority for them. So, you know, yeah. Anita Cass, one of our physio here, has done... A, um, a poster on nasal irrigation for these patients showing a good mm-hmm. actually responses uh, around this. Um, mm. uh, and the, the other thing is diagnostically. So the it, it is a, there is a questionnaire uh, for breathing pattern disorders. Uh, Brompton team has uh, published that a few years ago. It's available I think uh, online. Okay. Um, it will be a useful tool actually for people to, to download and uh, put in the clinic. Yeah. Um, and and um, it, the other thing is having a cardiopulmonary exercise testing for these patients um so a patient uh, comes our way at, at different severity levels so we have patients who um can't uh, do much at all uh, but you still can exercise them to a certain extent and the cardiopulmonary exercise test can tell you you know cardiac ventilatory pulmonary or deconditioning or and mm-hmm. Or will observe the breathing pattern during the exercise as well and mm-hmm. um, that that's been quite helpful yeah um, yeah so so the um, the thing is about if you are sitting in the clinic uh, and i found it a useful tip this one is um that patient will walk in the clinic uh, and if you have a spirometry looking fairly normal and mm-hmm. uh, the patient hardly can walk into the clinic Mm-hmm. Uh, you already know there is a discon- disconnect mm-hmm. uh, between physiological objective tests and usually if you listen to the chest, you find the chest is fairly physical not much of a wheeze and things. So, mm-hmm. it, so these are a group where it is predominantly breathing pattern yeah. and very little of asthma driving this. Yeah. yeah. And these are the, the important ones you want to pick as well. Because although a breathing pattern comes on top of asthma, so you could have a severe asthma and you have this making things doubly worse for you, could mm-hmm. also have this as a main diagnosis as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you, know, I, you know, I used to see like ACQ, asthma control questionnaire, scoring 666, which is, means worse level of symptoms. Can't mm-hmm. move, can't do anything. can't. And then the lung function, 100% yeah uh, and the oxygen saturation hundred percent, yeah, uh, and they are blowing away in front of you you, yeah. you know this yeah. is where it's going this is yeah. and you find them in a lot of medicine by the way, these patients it could be step four, even step five of their <laughs> after the after treatment as well
0: yeah yeah no i i see many many patients like that and like you'll say a part of your challenge as well is trying to undo years and years of being told they're asthmatic and their dependency on their their blue or their pink inhalers so yeah but, but.
1: it's, a, it's a, the longer it goes the harder it comes and and you know the very complex and obviously we, a lot of patients comes fairly late to see us um mm. where we, we will need then a combination of physio um you know specialist nurses yeah. and and the uh psychologists as well yeah. uh, because psychology become important because anxiety and depression uh, mm. is fairly well embedded in um, unfortunately because remember these patients some of them their life has completely changed from mm. being a normal functioning a human being doing everything to something happened and they become pretty much can't do anything mm. uh, and uh, and the, the longer it goes they you know lose jobs uh, family issues um it does change their psyche and they and the worse you know the deeper depression the more anxiety the more panic the mm. um the uh, you know the harder actually even if you fix the other parts you you don't deal with this yeah so, hence you really need uh, And we do lucky enough here at Heartland to actually have this sort of speech therapist, physiotherapist, psychologist, specialist nurses, Mm -hmm. um, and they run a therapy clinic sometimes in combination for those more challenging cases.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, if any of my colleagues are listening, I must say to the Samwell team that we do have a team of, of just all that, and they've worked. They're, they're a, a really exemplary team of multidisciplinary. Them, yeah, yeah, so they're very yeah. good. We're, I, we're very lucky.
1: So. You've you got an excellent team there. Um Yeah, we are got to close working relationship with them as well. Yes.
0: Right. Uh, I mean, it's been 50 minutes, so um, I think I I could talk to you and absorb your wisdom, but maybe for another time we can talk about, we didn't talk about rhinocinusitis and we didn't talk about digital monitoring of asthma. So I'm sure there'll be, if it's okay, we can maybe talk again in the future, but I'm sure people's commute will be well and truly over now. So they'll just be sat in their cars outside their houses. So... Um, Thank you very much for this. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Diane. uh, Thank you for your invitation. And uh, yeah, looking
0: forward for another one. (laughs) All right, then take care. See you soon. All right. Bye. Bye for now. If you liked what you heard today, then please do disseminate to your peers and colleagues and leave a review and hit subscribe. Thank you very much.